the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Friday, January 13th, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. Open line Friday, 602 We have our associate producer, David Dahl, here with us. And we have our chief producer, Bill. Welcome aboard, gentlemen. A couple lagging or nagging thoughts from throughout the week, if I may. I've used the phrase nostalgia de la boue here and there for a couple of decades, but never more than this week. It's been floating around in my head. Loosely translated from the French, it means nostalgia or desire for the mud or dirt. It made its appearance in English as a loan phrase in Tom Wolfe's great essay from 1970 about attending a Black Panthers fundraiser at Leonard Bernstein's apartment in Manhattan. Radical Chic was the title of that essay. Yesterday, we spoke of the Boston Marathon bomber and terrorist Chic. I took that from Tom Wolfe. In any event, Tom Wolfe was describing this beautiful this beautiful apartment in Manhattan, well-appointed, expensively tailored, with very wealthy liberals, attending a fundraiser for the Black Panthers, a Marxist and violent precursor to what a lot of us saw in BLM in 2020. Wolf wrote the following, quote, Giddy with nostalgia de la boue, they all entertained a vision of the future in which, after the revolution, there would no longer be any such thing as a two-story, 13-room apartment on Park Avenue with twin grand pianos in the living room for one family, which was Bernstein's apartment, fundraising and fawning to destroy themselves and their life is what Wolf was writing. And I was thinking about that and that phrase when I was thinking about how we are seeming to, as the Marines say, embrace the suck, embrace the failures on so many fronts in America. Not being able to get airplanes in the air was only this week's example. Well, perhaps attended by the effort to get us to get rid of our gas-powered stoves. But look at the work ethic which we've destroyed. Look at the crime problem which has exploded. Look at the border problem too few care about, attendant as it is with crime, sex and child, trafficking and drugs. And look at the marker I pointed out earlier in the week. I said it would make no headlines. And I was right. So I'll do it again. 1979 was, by every account, the worst year for regular, illegal, and dangerous drug use in this country. 14.1% Americans in 1979 that year were regularly using dangerous and illegal drugs. We couldn't handle it. So we went to work, and we, do, and we reduced it by over 65%, down into the 5% range. It's been creeping and creeping up, and this week, this week, this year... We hit 14.3% of Americans identified as regularly using illegal and dangerous drugs. We made, this year, this week, a new high watermark, a new high, or as it were, perhaps a new low. I said it would make no headlines, and it didn't make any headlines. 
And of course, all of this on top of losing over 106,000 Americans to drug poisonings last year. A 1,000% increase from 30 years ago when our population was one-third smaller. And nobody seems to care about any of this. Nor do they seem to care that this past year was the first year we lost academic achievement on a major scale in literacy and math in our elementary and secondary schools. Nor does anybody seem to care that for the third year in a row we have seen a reduction in life expectancy in America, something unheard of in advanced or even developing nations. Higher drug use, higher drug death, lower academic scores, lower life expectancy. Sound like America to you? Sound like anything great to you other than the kind of country we used to send missionaries to? That's what too much of this place has become, the kind of country we used to send missionaries to. And we keep taking away and settling for the taking away of nice things. Anyone who visited the Eastern Bloc or the USSR in the 1970s and 1980s tried to smuggle in our nice things, radios, novels, Levi's, music, Bibles, other goods. P.J. O'Rourke witnessed the crashing down of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and wrote the following, quote, The privileges of liberty and the sanctity of the individual went out and whipped butt. And the best thing about our victory is the way we did it, not just with ICBMs and Green Berets and aid to the Contras. Those things were important, but in the end, we beat them with Levi 501 jeans. 72 years of communist indoctrination and propaganda was drowned out by a three-ounce Sony Walkman. A huge totalitarian system with all its tanks and guns, gulag camps, and secret police has been brought to its knees because nobody wants to wear Bulgarian shoes. They may have had their soldiers and their warheads and the fine-sounding ideology that suckered the college students and nitwit third-worlders, but we had all the fun. Now they're lunch and we're number one on the planet. Made me want to do a little sack dance right there in the Cold War's end zone. We're the best. We're the greatest. The only undefeated socioeconomic system in the league. I wanted to get up on that wall and really rub it in. Taste the ash heap of history, you bullshit nose wipes. But there was nobody to jeer at. Everyone over there was in West Berlin watching Paula Abdul videos. Close quote. You take the point. And so I was thinking about what we are doing to ourselves. It may have accelerated with the shutdowns and lockdowns and gym and school and restaurant and bar closings during COVID in the name of fear and panic and against a lot of great evidence that was censored. But it was coming and building for a long time. A desire to live as if in some Stalinist or Maoist dream palace because of a desire for their ideologies and what it produces. Really, not nice things, but mud. Lousy, unfun, cold, fearful, report on your fellow citizens, police state, walking walking billboard of fear and panic mud. Nostalgia de la boue. Which is what got me to thinking about a guest on 60 Minutes last Sunday, one Dr. Paul Ehrlich. He didn't start the panic and fear and that everything should and will suck here. That came a little earlier, perhaps with the big 1965 hit by Barry Maguire, We're on the Eve of Destruction. But Paul Ehrlich, then a professor of Stanford, sure ramped it up with his 1968 book and huge bestseller, The Population Bomb. 
He and Dick gained popularity and notoriety for predicting, quote, predicting, quote, hundreds of millions of people starving to death. In the 1980s, we were scared into believing a nuclear winter would create a human and climatic catastrophe where over one billion people would be killed from a, quote, precipitous drop in the Earth's temperature and widespread failure of crops leading to deadly famine, close quote. In the 1990s, up through Greta Thunberg's Person of the Year designation, climate change, no longer a warming or a cooling, just changed, presaged no tomorrow, while, as she put it, entire ecosystems are collapsing around us, close quote. And Ehrlich, wrong about everything, was on 60 Minutes again last Sunday, where he said, quote, humanity is not sustainable. To maintain our lifestyle, yours and mine, for the entire planet, you need five more Earths. Not clear where they're going to come from, close quote. I believe he is as wrong about that as he was everything he's written and said since 1968. But CBS likes these old and exhausted volcanoes, especially if it can predict and instantiate Western failure and suck. Which I truly fear we are getting way too used to. And it's not a good thing to get used to, this nostalgia de la boue. If you think getting over and through COVID was a heavy lift, and it was, be prepared. A lot of people liked it. A lot of people miss it. You might say they have nostalgia for it. And the signs are everywhere. Not good. We didn't dissolve the USSR and the dark eastern block of Stygian darkness just so we could then imitate it, import it, and recreate it here. But don't misunderstand. That is what some want. Us to fail. CBS and the elites in that world, a vision of the future in which after the revolution there would no longer be any such thing as two-story, 13-room apartments on Park Avenue with twin grand pianos in the living room for one family, for example. O postscript, BLM, a Marxist organization founded by Patrice Coulors, an organization we were all supposed to kneel to, as many of you know, an organization that embraced Marxism and said was founded by trained Marxists, as many of you know, may not know this. A man named Keenan Anderson was killed in Los Angeles last week, stopped for a felony hit and run, trying to steal a car, resisting arrest, and getting tased by the LAPD. He went running into the middle of a busy, st busy street, Resisted arrest again when they caught him, yelled, don't George Floyd me, resisted some more, and ultimately taken to a hospital and later pronounced dead from a heart attack at the hospital. Cocaine and marijuana found in his body. He was Patrice Coulouse's cousin. She's blaming the police, of course, and demanding, demanding that the chief of police resign. We need a sunrise. We need sun. We need that light, which is the best disinfectant. I'm asking you to all be that light. I mentioned the passing of the great British historian who was a historian of America as well yesterday, Paul Johnson. In 1997, he published A History of the American People. It opened with these words, quote, 
The creation of the United States of America is the greatest of all human adventures. Close quote. Let's keep it. Let's make sure the last chapter of that book, whenever it's written, whenever it may come, has the same exact sentence. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Stephanie's in Scottsdale. Hello, Stephanie. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm wonderful. Um, I need to pick your far superior brain. Oh, oh we don't know that, but we'll, we'll give it. A... <laughs> I always get worried when people say that. Usually it's not true for the, is one reason, but go ahead. No, we'll work it out together true. and we'll crowdsource it to the audience if we can't get it together, Stephanie. What do you got? Okay, so I've been listening, and especially this morning, there was a gentleman um, that was being interviewed, and he's on the border um, trying to help the refugees, I guess he wants to call them, and he talked for about 25 or 30 minutes, and I listened and listened to him, and I thought, wait a minute, what grants people the right to apply for asylum? So I tried to research it. And it's, it just seems so simple to me. For example, the Jewish Holocaust would be a reason to ask for asylum. But it seems to me, and I may be wrong, that many or most of the people coming up from South America and Mexico are coming to find a better life, but are they actually qualifying for asylum under the rules that of our government. And so, I would like so okay, to thanks, know. Stephanie. Uh, stay, don't. I'm not hanging up on you. Think. I think I understand the question. Is what I mean. Sure, um, I, yeah. I, I, I. So not an area of my expertise, but asylum, or also known, I think, as uh, refugee status, is defined in federal law, and it has to do with uh, being the victim of persecution based on. A couple of different grounds that might include nationality, religion, um, that sort of thing. And this country has given asylum to tens of thousands of people every year. Um, it does it, and there's a process for doing it. The process has never been this, uh, or I should say it rarely has been this. Uh, you're probably uh, meaning no insult to you. I'm guessing you're, you're, you're maybe older than 30 years old. It's uh, it, it, the reason I say that is you may or may not remember the name Elian Gonzalez, mm -hmm. uh, whose mother put her life at risk and at end to get him out of Cuba uh, through the waters uh, to Florida. And she made a claim of asylum. And this country was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty darn callous about it and sent little Elian back to Cuba where uh he um, went and thanked his father. His father that he thanked was not the man who um, impregnated his mom. The father he thanked was Fidel Castro. That is what people in those countries um, like Cuba. Uh, that is, but that is parents' patriae. The father of you, the the father of you, is all controlling, and it is the communist dictator. It is interesting to me. As we are going through this special asylum process, Joe Biden announced the three countries we will we will be focusing on as Cuba, 
as Nicaragua and as Venezuela. Is anyone asking the obvious wholesale question of what these three countries have in common? They are deeply entrenched and communist-led countries. Is anyone asking that question? Is anyone asking what is the fuel for the tyranny these people or the totalitarian or the suffering these people are trying to flee to the degree that they are? No one's asking that question. We just seem to innocently sanitize the ideology in this country. Uh, we do it through all the children's books. We are doing it through Netflix specials. We are doing it through the New York Times, which does a Karl Marx birthday celebration. We are doing it through Teen Vogue, which has more articles celebrating Karl Marx than I think anyone else if you go online. We're going through this entire not just whitewash of Marxism, but celebration of it and not being able to connect the dots that people who are claiming the need for asylum because of persecution based on their race, religion or political opinion are all doing so from the countries that he is the ideological godfather to. That's what's bothering me more than anything else right now, Stephanie. That's what's bothering me as yeah. a far as far as the asylum qualifications. The zone the zone is flooded. Um, there are legitimate claims for asylum. The federal law you know, uh, does outline it um, in Title Eight, what Joe Biden calls Title Nine or Title Eight, but it's Title Eight of the U.S. Federal Code. Um, and and as I say, we have done it um, for decades. We have done it um, by the tens of thousands for decades. We are a very generous country. Um, Ronald Reagan gave one of his most famous speeches, um, really his first famous speech as a Republican in nineteen. 64, the time for choosing speech, where he spoke of a Cuban, uh, uh, a Cuban refugee from the Castro regime who said, you guys don't know how lucky you are because I had a place to go to. That place to go to is America. I get it and I understand it. But the system is being is being flooded. The zone is being flooded right now. And the one thing Joe Biden won't do or this administration won't do or the Democrats in the Senate and the minority in the House now won't do is put enough staff there to deal with it because they want to simply break the system and flood the zone. You may have heard of the Cloward and Piven strategy. It's based on the names of two political scientists who were prominent in the 1960s, Francis Fox, Piven, and I forget Cloward's first name off the top of my head. But their notion was to break the system for welfare, flood it. This is part and parcel of what later became known as the Alinsky School or the Alinsky Tactics, but that's what they're doing. And on the way to getting there, they have these uh, breads and circuses of an appearance by Joe Biden at the El Paso border where he goes to a migrant detention center and sees no migrants. Can you imagine? No migrants and no no open air um, uh, uh, chronic immigrants on the street. None of that. They cleansed it all. They just cleansed it all for him and for the media so that the American people cannot see it with their own two eyes unless and until a governor here and there like Abbott or DeSantis makes an issue of flying several of them to a liberal outpost. Stephanie, there is a law on this. I'm not against that law. But the law, like with every other law, has to be enforced. And to enforce it, it has to be staffed. And we're not staffing it, so we're not enforcing it. Hope that made some sense.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, your open lines Friday, 602-508-0960. Here's the headline from Fox News. CDC identifies possible safety concern for certain people receiving COVID vaccines. Nice, nice. Uh, You need some audio on it? I can give you some audio on this, I think. This now regarding the COVID vaccine, the CDC is now saying that there has been enough cases of people who have had the vaccine, received the vaccine, and then suffered a stroke. The agency will now be investigating any potential links between the shots and strokes in some of those patients. Now, now the agency will be investigating it. As Lisa Booth put it, here's a crazy idea. Why didn't we research it before mass vaccinations? And why did our government mandate a vaccine that may not have been safe in the first place? I can't tell you how many people I have run into, particularly over the ages of 55, who say things like, I really wished I didn't do it now, Uh, especially those who had COVID even before the vaccine. A lot of the stuff that we weren't allowed to say, I know this from firsthand because I was saying it and YouTube and Facebook kept taking me down every time I said it and was broadcasting on there. A lot of us who were raising some of these questions earlier, it's amazing uh, how free and open you can just say these things now. Leanna Wen, who is a uh, professor of medicine at George Washington University, Uh, And a CNN contributor throughout COVID was one of the uh, team fear people and has now had a change of heart, I guess. She's writing columns in The Washington Post, the likes of which were the kinds of columns several of us were writing in 2020 and 2021. Uh, I don't know how many times Hugh Hallman and I said things like this. Here's the headline of Leanna Wen's Peace today in the Washington Post. We are overcounting COVID deaths and hospitalizations. That's a problem. Do you remember every Tuesday, Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman and I going through the data on all this, saying this again and 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 censored again and again and again and again and again and again and again for saying it. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Wen writes, the United States is experiencing around 400 COVID deaths every day. At that rate, there would be nearly 150,000 deaths a year. But are these Americans dying from COVID or with COVID, she writes. Again, welcome to the party, pal. We were writing this very stuff two years ago. Understanding this distinction, she writes, is crucial to putting the continuing toll of the coronavirus into perspective. Ah, the word perspective, you say. Seems like that was a familiar one from us two years ago, too. Determining how likely an infection will result in hospitalization or death helps people weigh their own risk, does it now? It also enables health officials to assess when vaccine effectiveness wanes and future rounds of boosters are needed. Oh, you mean there's not a one-size-fits-all mandate anymore? And you don't have to choose between that and your job? On and on she goes. Um, Since every hospitalized, this is great, since every hospitalized patient gets tested for COVID, many are incidentally positive. A gunshot victim or someone who had a heart attack, for example, could test positive for the virus, but the infection has no bearing on why they sought medical care, but will be listed as a COVID death. It is added to their death certificate along with other diagnoses, 
even though the coronavirus was not the primary contributor to their death and often played no role at all. You know, I am telling you, this thing makes me so mad. It makes me so mad because we didn't have to get here. We didn't have to get here. Leanna Wen and CNN were part of the censorship apparatus two years ago when we were saying exactly those words, verbatim, verbatim. I can find columns with nearly exactly those sentences, almost plagiarized. Now, they're not because I'm sure she didn't read our stuff or care about our stuff. And there's only so many ways to write dying uh, with or from and death certificate and COVID and not chief cause or leading cause or any cause at all. There's only so many ways to write it. But, you know, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt were once talking and Roosevelt asked Churchill what they'll call this war that was World War II. And Churchill said, probably the unnecessary war, because it didn't have to happen. This didn't have to happen. We didn't have to ruin our country. Are you concerned with stock market volatility? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed rate of return courtesy of Y-Refi. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10 and a quarter. And check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. Since we have David with us uh, producing, our associate producer today, see if he has a political pin on. David, you got a political pin on today? Lapel pin? Yes, Seth, Mem- I do. What, what does it say? No third term. No who would third that be? term. No third term. No third term. Well, it would have to be prior to Truman. It would be Franklin Roosevelt, probably, right? Um, yes, sir. What an anti-Franklin Roosevelt. Anti-Roosevelt. Yeah. So election of 1940. Right on the money. Uh, and the Republican would have been Wendell Wilkie. That's right, Wendell Wilkie, Wendell Dark Horse Wilkie. candidate out of Indiana. Yeah, an attorney and businessman, uh, not a lot of political experience. Kind of an interesting. I don't, I don't have this all totally in my head, right? But he was his path to the nomination wasn't a smooth one. He was, um, he was more interventionist than a lot of the Republican Party at the time, as <clears throat> as Germany was sweeping through Europe, the rest of Europe. And I think people were concerned with isolationists like uh, like Robert Taft and, and, and others. So they ultimately, after several ballots, chose Wilkie, I think. Um, and then, of course, he lost to Roosevelt, who went on to not only win a third term, but a fourth term. Roosevelt's vice president was Henry Wallace in that race. Right on. And Henry Wallace was later um, a progressive, later outed himself as a progressive socialist, um, although I think people knew it at the time. I don't think people knew how left wing he actually was. Did a lot of damage, um, Wallace. 
uh, ran for president on his own ticket in 1948, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Henry A. Wallace. Uh, really the beginning of probably the, f- I don't know, did Gus Hall run before him or not? Really, oh, I ma- think Gus was uh, later. Le- yeah, later. I think Gus was later too. That's my memory. So Henry Wallace would have been really maybe the first socialist to run credibly for president. Well, Debs, I suppose, That's Eugene, right, Debs. Eugene Debs. Yeah, yeah. Or at least since World War II, the first socialist to really run for president in the United States. Socialist, communist, if we're being honest about it. Our good buddy, uh, John Gabriel, who sometimes sits in for me as a guest host, has a great column (laughs) coming out in the Arizona Republic. Uh, You know what Biden is missing? That key nerd to guide the White House. Everyone can feel it, John writes. Doesn't matter if you're on the left, right, or somewhere in the middle. America seems rudderless. It has for a long time, but it seems worse with our current batch of leaders, if you can call them that. As Washington grows and it's bureaucracy metastasizes, events set the national agenda more than President Biden. So let me share a leadership tip I learned from my first real job, serving on a U.S. Navy submarine, John Gabriel writes. Whether it's a military command, a mid-sized business, or a vast government, success requires three people at the top. I call them the face, the jerk, and the nerd. This is John. This is so classic, John. This is usually the CEO or in the Navy, the commanding officer, the face. This person officially runs the show, but in reality, his or her primary role is external. They give speeches to external audiences, thought leaders, and the press. The face schmoozes partners, intimidates the competition, cuts ribbons. 80% of their time is spent looking outward. Then there's the jerk. This is the executive officer on the submarine, but in business, the title might be executive vice president or chief operating officer or some startup annoyance like rock star guru of awesomeness. The title of jerk isn't judgmental. The number two in your organization has to be a jerk when necessary. The face promises 5% growth. The jerk raises hell when you only hit 4.2%. The face announces a hiring spree. The jerk outlines the layoff. These are usually friendly, well-adjusted people. They wouldn't have risen so high if they weren't, but they feel no need to be loved. The jerk takes the criticism so the face can get the compliments. And then there's the third person, the nerd. In business, this might be the chief technology officer, the chief financial officer, or something else. On a ship, it's the engineer. When the jerk orders the nerd to make more widgets, the nerd tells the jerk they need the larger widge maker, 3,400 and 670.2 more square feet of factory floor. He's read the latest research, studied the schematics, knows what's possible and how to make it happen. The nerd might not have social skills, but hand them a spreadsheet and a user manual and they won't leave their office before knowing everything about everything. If I walk into a company, I look for each of these roles, John writes. Might take a while to suss out since official titles vary. Maybe the chairman really calls the shots while the CEO inherited that title from the parents. But if the organization doesn't have this iron triangle, I know it's chaotic, inefficient, and has high turnover. Biden's administration lacks the nerd. In the political world, look at White House operations. The president is obviously the face, the chief of staff, the jerk. 
In the modern era, excuse me, in the modern era, the nerd might be the political strategist, while in earlier days the nerd would handle congressional relations. This explains why the Biden administration seems rudderless. Biden Biden isn't a face as much as a body dusted off and wheeled to a podium once a week. Who knows what's going on in the West Wing? Is the chief of staff playing? Is he playing the jerk? Or is he a secret face yanking levers behind the curtains? Maybe some political advisor is the jerk. Dr. Jill, maybe. No clue. An old Baptist preacher once told me, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pews. Put into secular terms, if the executive office is vague, dithering, and uncertain, the staff will be utterly adrift. Right now, there's a mist in the Oval Office. Perhaps a few insiders know who's running the show. But the rest of us are lost in the fog. It's a pretty darn good column. You ever heard that phrase before, David? If there's I a, not. No, great phrase. It. If there's a mist at the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. All right. I'm Seth Leapson, 602-5089-60. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The one thing I think I've said absolutely nothing about, uh, while everyone else has been saying things here and there, is this, um, I don't know, is it a public, is it a mental health breakdown in public? Um, this this Harry Windsor, this Harry and Meghan stuff, the series on TV or the, New book Harry has out. They call him Prince Harry, but is he still supposed to be called Prince Harry? I don't think he still gets really to be called Prince Harry. Anyway, this new book is out, and uh, parts of it uh, have been uh, read here and there and put out on social media here and there. And it is grandiose stuff. Uh, Peggy Noonan's column today uh, quotes uh, the book, How Would I Be Remembered for History?, and the headlines, and for who I actually was. She writes, Lordy was an attractive man, fifth in line for a largely ceremonial European throne. It would hardly remember him at all, unless he made sure we all remembered him. But Peggy's column actually is pretty interesting as it gets toward the end, if you want to read it over at the Wall Street Journal. It's about this, um, and I think we can probably start by thanking Oprah and Facebook um for this 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 making of every private thought and notion so very public she writes fully mature people have a sense of their own privacy they keep to themselves what is properly kept to oneself privacy privacy isn't some relic of the pre-tech past as i said once it connects to personhood has to do with intimate things, the inner workings of your head and your heart and your soul. You don't just give those things away. Your deepest thoughts and experiences are yours, held by you. They are part of your history. They are part of your dignity. You share them as a mark of trust. That's true intimacy, not phony intimacy, but the real thing, something Harry doesn't understand at all. For if you tell all the strangers in the world all your deepest of secrets— What do you have left to be intimate about? Indeed, what do you tell your intimates? A friend said the other day, most of the forces in the world are pushing toward exhibitionism and calling it honesty. 
The assumption is if you keep things to yourself, you have something to hide. But you aren't reserved out of shame. You are reserved out of a sense of your own value and self-respect. And it doesn't leave you alone. It means you are part of something larger, a whole world of distinct souls. You shouldn't violate your own privacy, not for attention or admiration and not for money. It's a mistake. And your healing should take place with your doctor, not the whole entire world you invite in. Good thoughts there. We can ponder that. Uh, We'll do uh, our political update of the week with George Kaloff when we come right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.